Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke. Thank you for joining me in this podcast series where I'll be sharing conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be helpful for your medical practice. In this episode, we're talking with two experts about family cancer screening. Genetic testing looks for specific inherited changes or variants in a person's genes, which may predispose them to an increased risk of developing disease. Harmful variants in some genes are known to be associated with an increased risk of developing cancer, and such inherited variants are thought to contribute to about 5-10% to of all cancers, an important but relatively small proportion of cancers overall. Genes involved in many of the known inherited cancer susceptibility syndromes have been identified, and increasingly patients and relatives are reaching out for testing and risk guidance. The publicity afforded celebrities such as Angelina Jolie who has the abnormal BRCA1 gene, and underwent bilateral mastectomy and subsequent oophorectomy after the death of a mother from ovarian cancer, no doubt contributing to increased inquiry. A patient should be aware that cancers may appear to run in families on account of shared environment or lifestyle, such as tobacco use, rather than from an inherited genetic variant. DNA sequencing on established tumours is now also increasingly being conducted to flag possible germline mutations that may imply a family pedigree and to be used as a guide to treatment. To discuss these issues, including the science of proto-oncogenes, tumour suppressed genes and DNA repair genes, as well as the place of genetic counselling and management, we're joined in conversation by Dr Lucy Gates and Lynn McKay from Cabrini Family Cancer Clinic. This clinic provides cancer risk assessment, cancer surveillance and genetic testing for hereditary cancer syndromes. Please join me in this conversation. So I'd like to welcome you, Dr. Lucy Gately, and uh, Councillor McKay to uh, Everyday Medicine with Dr. Luke. I really appreciate you both making the time to talk about uh, family cancer screening and the sort of work that you do at the Family Cancer Clinic. And I, I refer patients in, in intermittently for assessment when I think they may have the Lynch syndrome. And that's the main issue in which I'm dealing with in gastroenterology. Uh, can you tell me a little bit uh, about uh, um, about yourselves, uh, Lynn, uh, Lucy? Perhaps I could start with you. Can I ask your journey into medicine? You're a geneticist. How, how did you get into this field from medicine? So I'm actually a medical oncologist. So my main focus is managing patients who have been diagnosed with cancer. And I think over the last 10 years, we've really seen this introduction of personalised therapy. And this is generally managing patients who have mutations that have led to a cancer. That's something that they've acquired over their lifetime. But I think in the last sort of 18 months to two years, we've now seen that we're bridging the gap and the inherited cancer predisposition syndromes now have some targeted therapies towards them. And so this is where my interest in cancer genetics started and then over into inherited cancer predisposition syndromes. Yes, thank you very much. I was talking with Lynn about this before, that this is this really is sort of a, well, it's not the future of medicine, it's already here, isn't it? It's how, it's how we're honing treatments and improving outcomes. And it's, uh, it's just a testament, I think, to, you know, medical science and our understanding of microbiology, how uh, we're able to hone treatments and improve outcomes. Um, but your work is also integrally, it, it's, it's integrated with Lynn's work as a, as a counsellor. Can I ask you, uh, Lynn, how did you get into counselling? Where have you come from in terms of your journey into into this field? Oh, well, I've taken a long route, actually. I did a PhD in genetics back in the 90s and then went off and worked in government in policy work and then did research in the disability field. 
And when I had my children, I thought, well, how can I bring it all together? And I saw genetic counselling as a grad dip, did that, and here I am. Well, thank, thank you both again for this wonderful work. Um, I'm going to ask maybe Lucy again, what, what does the clinic do? Tell us about your work there at, uh, at Cabrini, the Family Cancer Clinic at Cabrini. How does it all work, uh, Lucy? What happens? So at the Family Cancer at Cabrini, we have our main genetic counsellor, who is Lynn, and then there's a team of medical oncologists that work alongside with Lynn uh, to facilitate genetic testing in what I would see as three main groups of individuals. So the first group being patients who have been diagnosed with cancer themselves, the second group being patients who have a strong family history of cancer but may not have been diagnosed with cancer, and thirdly, the patient who, again, is unaffected by cancer but has related to somebody in the family who has a genetic mutation. And I think all three of those patients we can see at Cabrini, and that makes us a unique service. There are some services that aren't able to offer self-funded testing, and we'll come to, to what the costs of testing are, but we at Cabrini are fortunate to be able to facilitate self-funded testing for individuals that haven't been diagnosed with cancer. So when someone is referred by a general practitioner or by another oncologist or by a clinician such as myself, but what what are you doing to that patient? Can, can you just give us a brief overview of the science of what, what are you actually looking for in general? And maybe we'll sort of just focus on the two big uh, areas, the, the breast ovarian cancer group and uh, the polyposis in uh, a client group that you deal with. Just tell us a little bit about the science. What are you doing there? So in general, when we're seeing patients in the clinic, uh, there's two sides to it. I suppose there's the science and then there's the clinical side. So when we look at the science side, we know that our that a human is made up of over 20,000 genes, but not all of those genes are associated with um, cancer development. So there are two types of genes that are associated with cancer development, and that is the proto-oncogenes and the tumour suppressor genes. So the proto-oncogenes are about 40 genes in our body that we know about that are proto-oncogenes. And what these genes are is that when they become mutated, they gain function. So these are the genes that, when they become mutated, can allow the cell cycle to continue uncontrolled and allow for uncontrolled cell growth and then the development of cancer. And in general, mutations in these particular genes are actually ones that we acquire over our lifetime rather than ones that we inherit through our DNA. So the second group of genes is actually the more important ones when we're talking about inherited cancer predisposition syndromes, and these are the tumour suppressor genes. And this, we know about 1,200 tumour suppressor genes, but this is changing year on year as we're discovering more and more about the human genome. These changes are that when a mutation happens to one of those genes, we actually lose the function of the gene. So that means that we lose the capability of the proteins such as mismatch repair proteins or homologous recombinations such as the BRCA genes. Um, the key difference between these two genes is that in a pro-oncogene, only one gene needs to be affected. One copy of the gene needs to be affected. So we know that as part of our body, we have two copies of every gene. So if it's a pro-oncogene, only one copy needs to be affected. But if it's a tumour suppressor gene, then both copies need to be affected in order for disease to occur. And this comes back to this Nudsen's two-hit hypothesis. So in 1971, a scientist, Nudsen, decided, based on the retinoblastoma, mm. that two hits were required in order for retinoblastoma to form. So the first hit could be an inherited gene mutation, and the second hit is then something that is acquired over time that leads to cancer within that tissue. So for retinoblastoma, within the eye tissue. Yes, Okay. In that, in that situation where you are inheriting the gene, and so we've got these inherited syndromes that we're talking about here, and that's really relevant to you guys, and then we've got you know, somatic mutations that are required during one's life and perhaps influenced by the environment, could be smoking, sunlight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But mostly what we're dealing with here are the inherited syndromes 
of which maybe 5 to 10% are only in that category. The majority are actually not inherited. And I think a lot of people perhaps don't appreciate that. But um, when we talk about that two, uh, two-head hypothesis of Knudsen, if you have an inherited gene, an inherited, an inherited mutated tumour suppressor gene, then is that also, uh, if you like, almost promoting the second hit? Is it almost permissive to the second hit? Is the second hit more likely if you've already inherited an abnormal gene or not necessarily so? So not necessarily so. So we know that genetic mutations happen every time a cell goes through a cell cycle and some allow are allowed to uh, sneak through our police and the others go down the apoptotic pathway. Yes. The difference is, is that when we've inherited that first hit, the time for that to, to get to that second hit is shorter. So instead of waiting 60 years to develop cancer because it's taken 60 years to develop two hits, because we're starting off with one hit, that second hit might happen within 30 years. And that's why we see that in people with an inherited cancer predisposition syndrome, that they often have the onset of cancer at a younger age than the general population. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the incidence is not, uh, the probability is not 100% in most cases. No. There are no. situations like with, with the APC gene, FAP, it's almost 100%, uh, it seems to be, that you'll develop a colorectal carcinoma, whereas in Lynch, it's maybe 70 to 80%, and I know the BRCA genes, it's less, again, for breast and ovarian cancer. But um, So in uh, this is getting off the track perhaps a little bit, but in the, you know, it's my own special interest, but I don't think I understand the science here entirely. But with uh, the FAP gene for uh, when you've inherited this, it, it, it does seem to be a much higher group of people are likely to develop colorectal cancer. And of course, we're promoting uh, proctocolectomies generally for these patients in their 30s. Um, c- can you explain that? Why is that such a, more, a much more aggressive uh, result from that mutation? Do we, do we understand that? I think at this stage we still can't understand necessarily why some genes are more penetrant than others, yes. and that's what we're really talking about here. So, yeah. for example, something like the FAP gene change is highly penetrant, meaning that almost 100% of people will develop cancer Uh, in their lifetime. Whereas something like the Lynch syndrome for endometrial cancer, it's not as penetrant. So you Mm. may see that rates of endometrial cancer are around that 30% mark, meaning that people with Lynch syndrome, 70% won't develop endometrial cancer in their lifetime. So the difference in the penetrance, I think, is something we're not entirely uh, certain on at this stage. Right. Okay. So we've we've got those those syndromes and we've talked about the proto-oncogenes and the tumour suppressor genes. Are there other genes that we should know about, you know, in general practice and medical practice? Um, we, we mentioned, I think, on the telephone a while ago that, you know, the P53, which is seminal to apoptosis and so forth. Are there other things that we should be knowing about that, that you, you would measure? So I guess in, in terms of P53 and mismatch repair proteins, they all come under the class of tumour suppressor genes. Right, so, so these are just proteins produced by those genes. Okay, it's all, it's all part of that class. So when you see patients, what, what do you do? You, you, you've had the discussion uh, but you're taking what a blood sample. How does it? How does the science work in the laboratory? What What do you do at at uh, the laboratory level? So genetic testing is done off uh, DNA, which is extracted generally from a blood sample. Um, and historically, this testing was all done by hand. But over the last few years, uh, we've had the introduction of next generation sequencing, which is basically an automated high throughput system. And this means that it's quicker. So what used to take months and months, almost a year to get a result, now takes six to eight weeks. It's cheaper. So what used to be thousands of dollars to do a panel of genes is now um, usually a few hundred. And it also means that we can do more detailed and comprehensive analysis of more genes as we learn about more genes, but also of a greater depth of analysis. Yes. So it's just a blood sample, not a tissue sample that you're working on when when they come to you. 
in the um, in the family cancer clinic there. Uh, I, I think people have a sense that, that since the human genome product that you can do a cancer screen on the blood and you can tell patients you know, what their risk is, uh, what the risk of lots of things is. Um, it, that's a myth that I think we need to dispel. Would, would you agree? W w any comment about that? So we can certainly do genetic testing. Uh, we can offer genetic testing for any individual in the community. Uh, but I think there are some false reassurances with genetic testing. So just because a genetic testing might come back negative, yes. it's only negative for the genes that we know about and we know to test for. So there still remains a baseline population risk for every cancer. So for example, if someone in the population, a woman in the population comes in to see us with no family history of breast cancer, then their risk before any testing is 12% because we know one in eight women in Australia develop breast cancer. No. Yes. If they have a genetic test and it comes back negative, their risk is still 12%. Their risk doesn't go down because they've had a genetic test. It just doesn't go up because yeah. they haven't found a mutation. And we know that that baseline population risk increases with age and also increases with family history. Yes, okay, gotcha. That's very helpful. So uh, in terms of the cost of a, a patient being referred to you, you mentioned the cost has come down and it used to be in the thousands. What What is there a Medicare funding for these sorts of tests if a general practitioner does refer a patient in what sort of costing can we expect? Well we have a, an out-of-pocket appointment cost of about $150-$160 um, testing. There's different ways you can go about that. They'll either reach the Medicare criteria um, or we have a small pool of discretionary money in the clinic that if we think a, a family is pretty close to that Medicare cutoff and, and should be tested we could arrange that. But if people are self-testing, tests start around $425 for just BRCA1 and 2 and they go up from there to about $600. Um, Lynch syndrome, for example, off the top of my head's about 525 When I started doing this 15 years ago, it was $4,000 just for one gene. Yes. And the Lynch yes. syndrome genes were $1,000 a piece. So it's come down considerably. Yeah, it's, it's really in that, it's very affordable, isn't it, in the affordable range. Does Medicare cover these costs as well? Is there a particular uh, criteria for Medicare to cover the cost? They cover the cost of um, BRCA testing and Lynch syndrome testing and FAP and MYH if there's a clinical reason to do so. But people just can't rock up and say, oh, I'd like to be tested for BRCA, for example, mm. and unless mm. they've got those strong features to suggest a BRCA mutation in the family, so, um, it wouldn't be funded by Medicare. And that's where you're starting to talk to people about what their actual risk is of having a mutation based on the family history. Um, whether they're the best person to test in a family, because ideally you don't test someone who doesn't have cancer because yeah. uh, um, we can't find a mutation doesn't mean anything. It could be there was something in the family in the sister who had breast cancer and they just don't have it. So ideally you try and start with someone who's actually got the cancer that you're interested in in the family, if that's possible. You know, obviously some families, people have passed away or people don't want to get involved in this process. You might have a sister who's concerned because her sister had breast cancer at 35 and is burying her head in the sand and wants to understand her risk. And, you know, we, we take people like that as well and talk about well, what the likelihood is, what a positive result would be, what a negative result would mean, which, as Lucy would explain, wouldn't yes. change much because yes. we don't know whether that sister actually yes. had breast cancer because she had a genetic predisposition yes. or he just fell under the we can't work it out right, right now or just maybe even pure bad luck because so cancer, breast cancer is such a common disease. So if we're referring, if we're referring to the cancer clinic and uh -huh. let's take the breast cancer situation first up, when would a doctor reasonably refer a person in for family cancer clinic assessment, given there's a family member with breast cancer? Is one family member with breast cancer enough? What, what sort of 
criteria we're looking at for breast cancer, first of all? What would happen is I would get a referral either from a GP or a breast surgeon themselves and I'd give them a ring and get a bit of a a feeling. Maybe someone in their 70s with breast cancer isn't as suspicious of a genetic change as someone in their 30s or 40s. There are particular types of breast cancer, like triple negative breast cancer, that are commonly, it can be associated with BRCA1, not always, but that can Mm. be a bit of an indicator. If you say had a, a mother and a sister and a grandmother all with breast cancer at relatively young ages, your 30s, 40s, 50s, rather than your 70s, 80s, 90s, that would be the sort of person to refer in. Anyone, if there's a man in the in the family with breast cancer, is always yes. a bit of a red flag yes. as well. So, it, um, so like young, young age. As well. So family in the family, young age. family pedigree, yeah. young age. Does it have yeah. to be more than one family member? Uh, if it's a male, sure, but if it's not a male, we're talking about females, which is the common situation, of course. Is it going to be, do you, would, would it be two family members that would trigger that referral or just one family member if the family member was in their 30s, for example? Is there a sort of a general Sometimes it rule? might just be the one if there was one, one young woman in her 30s because, you know, of course these genetic mutations can come down through the male side of the family and, yes. and men quite often don't get breast cancer whether they've got that underlying genetic predisposition or not because a lot of people say, well, I can't have it because mum and all of her sisters are fine yeah. and then you find out her dad maybe had very aggressive prostate cancer at a young age because that yeah. can sometimes link in as well. With, with, with or a bracket too. Melanoma yeah. and other cancers mm. as well. It all, you put it all together as a bit of a picture. So when we call people, when I call people for an intake, I do a little bit of a rough family tree and it gives you an idea of, of where they really sit. So if, if a GP was concerned about the family, it's certainly worth sending through a referral. We wouldn't have someone necessarily come in for a, an appointment if we talked to them and say, look, it doesn't look really likely to be a genetic cause. But some people say, look, I'd really rather come in anyway, talk about what screening I should do based on this and what the next steps are. So now we sort of let the patient lead us a bit once we're talking to them on the phone. And by the time you're talking to them, most are pretty keen to sort of follow through and, you know, yes. is there likely be a genetic cause or not? I wonder if Medicare had... Sorry, Lucy. Yes. I would just, just say in general that if they, if you have a low threshold for referring is what I would generally say, yes. you know, the person who's young, the person who has more than one tumour or the person who has another family member with either the same tumour, so another breast cancer or a related tumour, such as an ovarian cancer or prostate cancer, mm-hmm. those are the people that we're very happy to see. Um, or even just what we call the worried well, that someone who hasn't had cancer themselves but does have a, a few people in the family that do have cancer because, as Lynn says, we're very happy to have a discussion. We don't always suggest genetic testing, but in those Mm. who we think it might be useful or in those who are strongly motivated, we can assist. assist. Uh, I wonder if Medicare had a particular set of criteria uh, that they imposed upon you in relation to, say, breast cancer and and indeed bowel cancer screening because sometimes I suspect you might be referred. I have referred people I know and it's there's just been maybe one family member with bowel cancer and I thought, well, it's a young age, I'm just a bit concerned and it perhaps hasn't fulfilled the criteria. Are the criteria that we should be aware of in the community before we refer people in and you know, spend that time? So there are criteria. There are, there are some good referral guidelines on a uh, website called EBIQ, E-B-I-Q, put out by the New South Wales government. So there are some good referral guidelines on there. Um, in terms of meeting the Medicare threshold, for yes. breast cancer, it has to be a, a greater than 10% chance of having a mutation. So we have various models that we use to calculate that. But the Manchester criteria is a surrogate to that that can help uh, to look at some patients who may reach that cutoff of 10%. Again, for the bowel cancer, we really are reliant on the mismatch repair immunohistochemistry. So those that have absent staining on that test, or we can use the Amsterdam type two criteria, but again, it, it, um, these are all guides to helping mm. us, it, but often um, 
it's once we've had more detailed discussion with the patient and a greater pedigree put together that we can make that final call on who meets Medicare and who doesn't. And for us, meeting Medicare is not a criteria for referral because we're able to offer self-funded testing. Yes. Look, Lucy, is, is there a move now in Australia for every bowel cancer to be tested for mismatched repair genes? Uh, certainly if they're, I guess, under the age of 70. Is that, is that a standard now? I know that is in some parts of the world and I'm not sure that I've seen that in every single case that I've referred in, but, but is that... Certainly since 2012, it's becoming more standard. So prior to that time, it was really quite specific patients, I think less than 55 at that stage, mm. whereas over the last 10 years, it is becoming more and more standard. And there is a call now for endometrial cancer to be standard as well. Yes, mm. yes. Okay, well, that's very helpful. Uh, are there some common questions that tend to be raised by patients when they're referred in? What are the sort of questions that you guys have to feel generally? Or from general practitioners who maybe are asking? Well, people are usually, you know, if they're in the middle of treatment, sometimes they've got questions about, well, genetic testing and, and the sort of things we discuss influence their, the treatment that I'm going to go through. Um, a lot of people are really concerned not only for their own health and what they need to do next regard to screening or surgery mm -hmm. options and so forth, but what it means for their children, their brothers and sisters, the rest of the family. They, they tend to be a lot of things that come up. You know, I've had... Bowel cancer, for example, what does that mean for my children? What they, should they start screening? What mm. should they do? Should they be doing something at this current stage? So we can sort of talk them through all of that sort of issue once we've got the family history and a bit more information um, to go on. And I suppose for me, one of the greatest questions I get is if someone who's had cancer and then returns a negative test, most mm. commonly I'm asked, well, then why did I get cancer? Why me? And I think it's really important then to remember that inherited cancer predisposition syndromes only make up 5 to 10% of all people diagnosed with cancer, meaning that the vast majority of people we see are going to return a negative test, and it's simply because of environmental exposures, polygenic risk, so lots of little changes across a number of different genes, or, or purely chance as to why they've developed cancer. Yes. I'd like to thank you both very much for joining me today and I hope I can tackle you on some more questions perhaps for next week's episode too. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining me in the conversation today with Dr Lucy Gates and McKay on family cancer screening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. We'll be joining Lucy Gates again in our next episode to discuss the significance of the BRCA gene and Lynch gene tests. Please join me in that episode also. During the podcast series, we'll be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and maybe email to manager at gihealth.com.